32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. And I'm Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week's county is the delectable Galway. And this week's question, what happens to people who die in direct provision? Andrea, how was your week? My week was... Oh my God, it was the most middle class week I've ever had in my life. I went to Taste of Dublin twice. I've oh never seen God. a more middle class situation in my life. It's so gas. Like literally there's this guy with an umbrella and like it was obviously a very, it was raining, but he had just a sign where like KPMG guests beside the oyster and champagne tent. And I was like, this is gas. Now I had a great time and I love it, but. Was it any use? I always find like I haven't been in a few years, but when I did go a couple of times, it's like, they have the fake money. Do they still have that? No, Florians are gone. Okay. You can pay touchless with your card for everything. Um, but I went once with my mother, which was lovely. And we had a few bites. Gorgeous mother-daughter bonding time. And then I went the next day with my friends and I did not taste one thing. The taste of Dublin was Prosecco. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Should be a bloody slogan for this town. Um, my week, thanks for asking. Um <laughs> I was in Belfast the weekend at that uh, documentary festival I was talking about last week. Yeah. And I had a really good chats with um, Bernadette You're Mikowski. best friends now, aren't you? I just think she's so amazing. I was very intimidated. Um, and you know when you meet someone that you've respected for ages and ages and ages and then they just turned out to be completely sound and lovely and down to earth and fun and brilliant. So um, that was my vibe. Did you follow her on Instagram? I don't think she's on Instagram <laughs> somehow. That's how you know you're really friends. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Week that was in news. Uh, Diageo pulled their sponsorship, London Irish rugby team. Um, upon the signing, or there's a little, obviously the London Irish signed Paddy Jackson, which even on a superficial level, I mean, the optics, of it, I don't know what they were thinking. Well, obviously it's because the manager worked with him before. They obviously have a relationship. Right, I didn't know that. So, Jack Kidney's in there. Oh, right, okay. Um, yeah, so Dia- Sports, 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 Andrea. <laughs> so, <laughs> Diageo pulled their sponsorship, um, which is probably a good move. Um, Paddy Whiskey are looking to pull theirs as well. Okay. So, that's kind of the ongoing uh, impact, the rippled effect of. Consequences. Uh, consequences, yeah, that's the, the, the word um, of the Ulster Rugby Rape Trial. Uh, and um, there you go Saz Paddy <laughs> um, the government launched climate action plan this week and it's been received quite well I guess uh, people saying that it's quite radical and making apart from the Green Party yeah Eamon Ryan's like uh, it's not far enough and they arrived as well on one uh, token bus that was it wasn't the full electric it was a uh, hybrid. A hybrid. So there was a few issues about that. And we only have one in so far. Like, we obviously, there needs to be a lot more. Yeah. I know that when they were... Uh, it must be... Sorry to interrupt. It yeah. must be so annoying being a politician. Like, literally, you do anything that's good and everyone finds things that are bad. Like, you're literally like, okay, we're going to bring this in. That's not good enough. That's, Politics is hard. Well, that's just the, the way nature that it of is. Life. I mean, I think aim, or the Green Party's thing, the biggest issue was around transport, that they didn't feel like there were specific, you know, things were specific it enough. It was more, wasn't enough walking and cycling. It was too much road and not public transport. Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of true. And I, I mean, with regards to that hybrid bus or whatever, mm. I know that when um, there were big kind of pronouncements being made, that like, you know, Dublin buses only going to have like electric and hybrid buses from now on. And then to get in for the deadline, 
before the deadline of that uh, Dublin bus ordered 200 uh, diesel buses <laughs> so it's like <laughs> great totally see your commitment there but um, yeah I mean at least uh, some indication on climate but I suppose all these things is they kind of tend to lack specifics and people want to know well are you actually going to do this you know, and you it's all well and good having a plan but the actual result is the actual actions that come out of it and yeah. the budget that's put towards it so budget will be very indicative of what's going to be actually supported yeah and to local politics, Andrea. <laughs> Dublin City Council have done a wonderful thing. Uh, Rebecca Moynihan was out talking about their commitment to the nighttime economy and they are have committed to a nightmare, which is a great move. And obviously, Josephia has been Minister Madigan to her non-friends, um, is <laughs> committed to the nighttime economy as well and has had all those workshops, etc. So it's good to see that it's coming through the councils and they've also committed to stop selling public land to developers and to use that land for public housing, which is a really nice thing to hear. Um, if there's any public land left. <laughs> if there's no hotels on them. Yeah. Um, yeah, the nightmare thing, obviously you're a big uh, champion of that. Um and uh, rightly so. It's it's a really important idea. I just hope that when the discussions around it happen, that it's not just framed around regulation and licensing and stuff like that, and that it's a broader kind of well, cultural examination. Something of something she said was that she wanted there was going to be pe- places for young people to hang out, and that was being brought into it as well. So the, it's like I think this Rebecca's is Rebecca. very tuned in to that yeah. kind of thing. Um, so I do have high hopes, but obviously there's a there's a worry because we don't have an elected mayor that that there's no one to, for the nightmare to report into essentially mm-hmm. so with, who has power so you need the power to go along with it totally yeah Rebecca Moynan's really great councillor actually so well done to her doing that um, Toronto Raptors won the NBA title <laughs> see sport Andrea strikes again well I was just yeah I mean I was kind of weirdly invested in this just through following Drake on Instagram and also my friends who live in Toronto <laughs> yeah, who are, are delighted and they're just constantly it's the first time a Canadian team has won an NBA title yeah totally and uh, a teammate yeah I think it's brilliant and just to see obviously the shooting that happened when they were at the thing there was a few people injured with the shooting but to see the amount of people that came out to what welcome was the shooting? there was a shooting at the um, what's that thing where they all come out to welcome them home like a parade thing yeah and four people no one was uh, killed but there was four people injured and it was when Justin Trudeau was on the stage with the team um, that it happened so there's a few questions of like the fact that there was a shooting while so closely to him and all that jazz but yada 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 the joy is that they won yeah fair play and the Drake, <laughs> the Drake curse has been lifted and congratulations to all of the Torontonians. And then the next very serious thing that happened this week, the cat filter being applied to the Pakistani minister's Facebook broadcast. And it was on a few of them. And it, was for the whole, it was for the whole thing. It's just the most millennial thing that can possibly happen in a political broadcast. I just can't Who, get enough so of it. So I'm not on Facebook and I don't use any of these. It's um, in the newspapers as well. Okay, you know? but no, but I no, I'm just saying that it, with regards to like people doing filters on their ministers, um, <laughs> on their, th- I've I've never used a filter. I see it on people's Instagram stories with like I'm a dog or whatever. This is the ultimate generation gap for me. Like I don't take selfies. I don't do Instagram stories. I don't understand 
when people are like talking to people on Instagram and they're like a fucking <laughs> Batman or some shit like that. I just don't get it. How can this happen that if somebody's doing a political <laughs> broadcast on a social media platform that there's then a cat filter on it? How long were they a cat? <laughs> Why Apparently didn't they it was take a very it honest mistake? No heads have rolled and they're being very supportive of the person who made the mistake, which I think is a nice thing to see because, you know, we all make mistakes. And sometimes you put a cat filter on your minister's <laughs> political broadcast. <laughs> oh, I live for it. Um, and then our last piece of very important news this week is that <laughs> <laughs> wow, we re- it really was a slow news week, wasn't it? OJ Simpson has used has learned how to use Twitter, and the first port of call for him uh, to use his Twitter pr- platform was to clarify that he is not, and I repeat, not Khloe Kardashian's father. And he came out with a lot of statements saying that he, him and Chris never fooled around. And are you delighted that we're going into a Kardashian? I just, like, cannot fucking... I just, I just can't believe that he is, like, using his platform for that now. Obviously, he's friends with Trump, so, like, I don't know what my issue or why I'm surprised. But um, I don't know why he has to clarify it. He's so honest. <laughs> I just can't... Oh. I can't. Moving on. I, I mean, I just like OJ Simpson, you know, and also the Kardashians. Do you know he's a political analyst now? Um, I found no. that out on TNT. When did TNC. he get out of jail? When was he? He was in jail for... Um, Murder? No. <laughs> Jesus. He was in jail. Don't sue us, OJ. Don't sue us. He was in jail for stealing uh, memorabilia in Las Vegas or something? Was that... That was why he was in jail. Well, now he's a political analyst. I he, like that. I think that just sums up America. There you go. Um, I'm looking here now at how we got out of jail. Actually, who cares? I, I don't really care. <laughs> um, okay, so that's OJ Simpson. Although you know, one thing that I did really like, definitely one of the best documentaries in recent years, is OJ OJ Made in America. That HBO documentary is amazing, and I had watched the American Crime Story of Sarah Paulson forever, obviously. You know, I only watch things that have high school musicals or a love story. Made in Manhattan. Why has that not got an award yet? Like, like, and I'm actually not being facetious. It's a brilliant film. Do you want a retrospective award ceremony for Made in Manhattan? No, it should have got it at the time. Like, Like it has everything. It's got politics. It's got love. It's got class issues. It's got J Lo. Come on. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know how every conversation we have ends up with you advocating retrospectively for Made in Manhattan, but we are where we are. Things that cost three euro. Two bottles of sparkling water. Where? You oh. just bought that bottle of sparkling water right there for two fifty. I didn't because I don't use single-use plastic. Stop outing me. <laughs> um, I'm going to say uh, a mango in Fallon and Burn probably costs three euro. Uh, five bags of Manhattan popcorn. Mm. Um, two cigarettes. Side note on the Manhattan popcorn. Did you see the promo shots for their new um, partnership with Jamie Heaslip? No. Well, I would ask everyone to go and look at them. I okay. guess. Um, other side note on Manhattan popcorn, my favourite cheese and onion crisps are black Manhattan. Oh, agreed. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and they don't use any palm oil. Oh, great. And they're Irish and they're, Manhattan is a great brand. 
Um, other things like not an Manhattan. They should get J Lo as a. See you later, okay, J. Can we just please come back to things that cost three euro? <laughs> oh yeah, loads of other things. A glass of Guinness costs two something, two eighty. I'm re- I, does milk cost three euro? I don't know. Uh, I feel like a, an oat milk. Yeah, what? like an a oat, barista a, one. An Oatly, the barista yeah. edition of Oatly. Yeah. Uh, three, yeah, euro. three euro other things that cost three euro include uh, the nominal amount, uh, amount that you can support us on Patreon patreon.com forward slash United Ireland three euro three euro three euro made in Manhattan This week's county is Galway. Hit me with the Galway facts, Andrea. The population, 79,934 according to the recent census. And this is really interesting for me because I'm from Tala, but it's always compared to the population of Tala. It's always like, Galway's the same as Tala. Or Tala's the same as Galway. Whatever. Um, Galway is a place very close to my heart. My mum is from Galway and oh. all of my mum's side of my family still live in Galway pretty much. So I know it like the back of my hand. It's my second home. Surprise, surprise, I don't. <laughs> uh, so what else did you learn? <laughs> what about else did going? I learn on my uh, trawl of the internet? The longest place name in Ireland can be found in Galway. And I went to the longest one in Wales and got a photograph. They have a sign. I wonder if they have a sign here. It's called, I bet you I'm going to pronounce this really well. Muk an agara duala hala. <laughs> I feel like I definitely said that wrong. Do you? I feel like you nailed it. Okay, well, anyway, it means figury between two briny places. Nice. Whatever that means. Uh, the symbol of love, friendship and loyalty, and also our logo, is almost certain to have originated in Clada and Goy. And I put in almost certain there because I don't think you can actually say where things come from because the Clada ring is actually a part of a group of rings called a Fede ring that also came from Italy and France and England. So it's this evolution of uh, a ring and a symbol. I feel like that's what culture is, an evolution and nobody owns it, right? Uh, Michael D. Higgins served two terms as mayor in Galway from 1981 to 1982 and 1990 to 1991. And this, this is the big one. Smith's head office is in Galway. The toy shop. Yeah. And why is this so important to you? Because I just thought it was a nice fact and I love to see commerce outside of the cities, big cities. Always is a pretty big city though. It's the size of Tala. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Galway has the largest Gale talked in Ireland and 10% of the population actually live in it. Um, I'd love to be able to speak more Irish. I really did try for a while. I got the app and everything. to The Duolingo uh, one. Yeah. And yeah. I... And I kept ordering my coffee and Clement in Irish and they literally like shut up um, and loads of movies were made in Galway The Guard one of my absolutely favourite Irish films would you agree I love it so much it's just so funny and it was nominated for an Oscar Marley and Me Tristan and Isolde with James Franco Into the West uh, my drama teacher was actually in that I, mm. uh, and I, I went to drama with Andrew Scott as well I can't believe I'm not a famous actress there's still time the Field by Jim Sheridan with Richard Harris and The Quiet Man with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. Go on, Galway. Yeah, I mean, Galway has such an amazing film and art scene, right? I mean, Film Flaws there, Galway yeah. Arts Festival. Um, it's just constant festival. Oh, how did I leave this out? It's also going to be the European capital of culture in 2020. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's had some personnel issues with that as well. I think that's kind of seems to be par for the course. I remember the whole stuff going on with when Limerick was 
capital culture. Uh, so there's been people kind of moving around, people leaving management and then other people coming in. One thing I am very excited about, though, uh, for 2020 is John Jared's like mirrored pavilions that he's going to be doing on the carb. He is one of my favourite Irish artists. You're going to have to give us a bit more about that. He's he's like, but so John Jared is a really amazing um, visual artist who does a lot of stuff around like um, neur- neural networks and uh, like kind of CGI effects type stuff. Okay, but fab. The, but that um, a lot of them kind of just let run themselves. So he's done a lot of video work with like fake oil slicks on rivers, and also he is one of one of the most famous people pieces is. Um, it's to do with like a flag and it's like black smoke billowing out of a flagstaff like um, like that looks like a flag but it's actually this commentary on like fossil fuels and oil stuff and he's done a lot of installations I feel like it's visual yeah very much so like we need to see it oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway he's done a lot of stuff in the States I think Leonardo DiCaprio bought one of his big pieces he did this kind of big kind of pavilion piece outside uh um, is it MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles? And also um, Desert X recently. Fab. And he's doing something in Galway. Yeah, he's doing these like mirrored pavilions on the, on the carp. Amazing. So that's the contemporary art part of this week's podcast. <laughs> but to talk about Galway um, is one of our fave Galwegians. Her name is Nicola Coughlin. She is a dairy girl. She's an absolute boss. And she's going to tell us what she loves about being a tribes person, as it is the tribal candy. Why do I love Galway? Um, I think because... It has always just felt to me like a really special place to be from. I've always felt very lucky to be from here. Whenever I meet anyone abroad that's been to Galway, I always ask them, you know, were people nice to you? Were people nice to you when you came here? And they always just, that's the main thing they talk about in the city is the people. Um, Lonely Planet voted us the friendliest city in the world. Very proud of that fact. But I think, you know, I think it would be a great place for a traveller to come on their own because you'll meet someone who'll who'll chat to you and get to know you and hear hear your story. Um yeah, I felt always like a very creative place growing up, like with the arts festival and the film fla and to have these, you know, performers come from all over the world. Like that was really inspiring to me as a kid and seeing all that kind of amazing theatre and the you know, the big blue the big blue tent and <laughs> all of that stuff and, you know, I I went to college here, I went to NUIG and got involved in, in drum sock and all of that. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's it's such like a tiny city when you come to it, but it, you feel the real heart of it. It's, you know, it feel it's like, how am I, how am I describing this badly? <laughs> no, but you walk down the street in Galway and you know, there's all the buskers and the performers and it always feels very alive. There, it always feels like there's something going on here. Um, I mean, to go down, it's funny, I brought Dylan, who's our, our wee English fella. I brought him um, to Galway and, you know, I I overhyped the Spanish Arch, I think, because I just have so many great memories of going down there, like during the summer, you know, you know, a couple of cans in the arch, <laughs> you couldn't beat it. Um, but yeah, I brought Dylan down there and then he was he was underwhelmed by the Spanish arch and I was mortally offended. But then I thought, oh, maybe it's just the, the, the memories of the place and, you know, going around the, like the long walk or going for a walk on the prom and, you know, going for pizza and Dobro's and, 
yeah I think like a, a lot of my memories of of Gogoya is just like the people and how how lovely and warm it is and yeah I love it <laughs> This week's question is what happens to people who die in direct provision? I mean, it's certainly the most grimmest thing we could cover, but it's also really important. It comes on the back of a very difficult uh, story, that of Silva Tkula, who was a person living in direct provision in Galway. Silva was, uh, happened to be a transgender woman and uh, she arrived from South Africa a number of years ago or she's from South Africa, arrived in Ireland a number of years ago. And I suppose as a, as a, as a trans person was on another personal journey, um, as we all are. And um, Silva became involved and very visible in the Goway LGBT community, volunteering at Pride and, all, Pride and all that kind of stuff. I've been talking to one of uh, Silva's friends this week um, just to try and gain some um, insight into what happened uh, because I didn't know uh, Silva personally and didn't necessarily know the situation what was going on so I've been talking to um, people who did and have more insight than I have and just want to talk a little bit about about this case and why we're why we're discussing it so Silva was housed in Great Western House or Great Western Hostel Galway City Centre it is an all-male direct provision centre Silva had a single room there a lot of the rooms are you know occupied by two or three people and in August of 2018, seemingly perfectly good health, Silva died suddenly in that accommodation. Obviously, her friends were very shocked and saddened. You know, this is, I think it's important to know that this is a person who was very visible in, in the um, LGBT community in Galway. So like loads of people would have known this person and quite embedded in, in the community there in, in many ways, particularly in uh, a centre called Amok in Galway, which is LGBT centre there. They're really good, good folks there and then uh, basically this sequence of events that happened is kind of difficult to figure out in which order that they did but if you kind of consider the moving parts of it so there's the uh, centre itself this great western house there's um, RIA which is the kind of the agency that has responsibility with asylum seekers and with direct provision system then there's the Department of Justice then there's the coroner then there's the Gardaí so there's a lot of moving parts. And somewhere within those moving parts, um, when it came time for there to be a funeral and for Silva Tukula to be buried, the people who knew her were not informed. And so uh, she received essentially, I suppose, what you would kind of used to call a pauper's funeral, you know, this a kind of ceremony with, with nobody there and buried in um, a HSE-owned plot in a cemetery in Galway. There was no inquest uh, into um, the death that would have been the coroner's call. And um, the coroner said that the inquest uh, wouldn't be required um, because the post-mortem disclose, disclosed natural causes of death. One of her friends um, told me yesterday that um, Silva dived into the community and contributed to it in huge ways and that they, through her death, you know, the community is robbed of all that. And they were also then robbed of being able to celebrate her properly when she was um, buried alone. So direct provision is something that seems like an insurmountable system, right? It comes up an awful lot. Um, people write about it all the time, write about injustices 
around it. We can absolutely view it in the context of the culture of institutionalisation uh, and banishing um, and hiding people away that Ireland has, which is a very storied and grim history. But it's also a system that is so opaque. It is really difficult to get answers and information from people involved. You know, these kind of things that hide people away then become very untransparent themselves, right? I mean, it's kind of difficult to get even the most basic things um, quickly in terms of information about direct provision. But what we do know about this place in particular, this great Western house in Galway, is that it has been in operation more or less since 2000 uh, as a direct provision centre, which is roughly around the time direct provision started. Um, The person who uh, owns it is Sean Henley, a company called Sidetracks. And um, Sean Henley... uh, is one of the biggest recipients of um, money related to running direct provision in the state. Um, in 20, oh, a good few years ago, it was listed as kind of the fifth highest payment. Obviously, direct provision is a very expensive system and uh, the state pays private contractors to run centres. Sometimes they used to be hotels or hostels uh, or apartment uh, blocks Um, or other kind of, you know, accommodation, uh, like communal accommodation. So between um, 2000 and 2012, Sean Hanley received 24.3 million from the state uh, for running this particular place in Galway. It's around 2 million a year. So you could kind of guesstimate, I suppose, since then, uh, seven years later, it's probably another 14 million-ish. I looked through the inspection reports for 2014 and 2018 of uh, the centre and there was nothing really that jumped out. I mean, a lot of the stuff seemed kind of listed as adequate. In 2014, there were 12 issues I counted with some of the bedrooms, including bedrooms needing cleaning and tiles needing replacement and leaking windows and that kind of thing. Um, Most of the rooms were shared by two people, some shared by three and then some single occupancy rooms. As I said, it's an all-male accommodation. And then the 2018 inspection, uh, a couple of things that were noted to kind of give you a little bit of colour as to what, what these places are like. So residents do not have control over heating in their bedrooms. That was one of the things listed. There is no defibrillator in the centre, no newspapers, the condition of the exterior, maintenance of the grounds, cleanliness of the grounds was marked as adequate no windows in the kitchen, that kind of thing. Uh, these are not particularly pleasant places to live, um, but live in them people do. Uh, a lot of people, uh, nearly 6,000 people in direct provision in this country as of February. One thing to note about this place, Great Western, is that there was a case um, uh, of criminal damage um, taken against uh, an asylum seeker living there in 2016 um, and he was sentenced to six months for causing 1,800 euros and 91 uh, with the damage uh, with an iron bar and we smashed up basically I think parts of the lobby or something like that after being told that he was being transferred to Limerick it's clearly somebody uh, in a lot of trauma there Um, 
And uh, that is where Silva Tukula died. Between 20 or 2003 and 2013, there were 53 deaths in direct provision. Another figure that's given is between 2007 and 2017, there were 44 deaths. It's kind of hard to figure out what the total is really, I suppose, with that. Um, the highest age group of deaths in direct provision is babies and children aged between newborn to five years old. 16 deaths in that category during that time. Um, three stillborn babies, one neonatal death is included in that. Um, it's quite unusual that such that would be the, 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 the age category with the highest number of deaths. You'd imagine it would be much older people. Um, a third of the deaths that have occurred in direct provision are listed as unknown. So that is where we are at. Uh, as of this year, five of the 40 direct provision centres nationwide are over capacity. Mosny, for example, which is kind of one of the most famous ones, has a capacity for 600 people. Um, in February, there are 693 asylum seekers living there. Um, it is a dire situation where, in which there have been some improvements, which we're going to talk about in a second. But ultimately, the lived reality of people living in this system is pretty deplorable. And it is one of the greatest stains on the state and on the conscience of the state. It's also very difficult to, re to figure out what you can actually fucking do about it. Um, but to discuss this, we're going to talk to somebody who has emerged over the last eight years as probably the most high profile person living in direct provision, Ali Kasambia, who recently ran in the locals. I've known Ali for years and um, she's an extraordinary person. And uh, sometimes I hate calling on her to talk or about these things or, or represent everybody or the issue. Um, but I guess the leader that she is, you know, she too puts herself forward to be heard. And so we spoke with her um, for this podcast. This interview is quite difficult just for some people. It's quite upsetting. And uh, we're just very grateful for Ali to coming into the studio and being very honest with us. Obviously, the question that we're asking is, is what happens when people die in direct provision? I guess there are different kinds of deaths. For some people, that death is a death of the spirit. And uh, it's incumbent on us to try and keep people alive in all the ways that we can. So um, here's our chat with Ellie. Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm the producer of the United Ireland podcast. And just a quick note before we move on with this interview with Ellie Kasiombe. We noted during the conversation, Ellie happened to use a male pronoun for Silva Takula. As you'll hear during the interview, it was a very emotional conversation. And the things Ellie's discussing about her personal day-to-day -day existence in direct provision are obviously very difficult and traumatic. At the time, we noted that Ellie was using he pronouns, but we didn't stop the interview or we didn't make an interjection because, as you'll hear, she was upset and we were trying to be as sensitive to her as possible and as responsible to everyone involved, especially in the heat of the moment, as I'm sure you can appreciate. So while people may have known Silva at different parts of her personal journey, she was a trans woman. Thank you. In studio um, is Ali Kasiambe, who is an amazing woman. 
Um, she recently ran in the local elections in North Inner City in Dublin for a Social Democrats. Very high profile campaign, which had its difficult moments. Um, but Ellie maintained uh, dignity and uh, power and presence and uh, solidarity throughout it. Um, Ellie also is one of the people who established Our Table, the amazing food project. Uh, you know, has done so much stuff. Is amazing advocate, activist, um, and great member of community in Dublin and in Ireland. And uh, also lives in uh, direct provision situation, mm-hmm. has been for eight years. And I know it's really difficult to talk about these things. And, you know, sometimes when, when we're talking, because mm-hmm. we've known each other for a long time, mm-hmm. it's like we're constantly talking about yeah. the same thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and in light of um, what happened to Silva, one of the things that I found very difficult about it, and I can't imagine what it's like for you, is that it seemed to really see how people are marginalised and removed and detached not only in life but also in death Mm -hmm. and you know extraordinarily uh, grim thing when we were discussing this uh, the other day you were talking about how yes there may be higher profile with regards to direct provision or more people coming out talking about it but the reality of life in the centres is the same Mm -hmm. what can you tell us about that like Uh Thank you so much, Una, for coming, uh, for inv- for having me and inviting me. Um, I know this is going to be one of my hardest interview after the election, and not only one of my hardest interview. And I think you, you're one of the people that we know each other as friends through media. We knew each other through media, then we we become friends, and we've known each other for a very long time. And uh, you and I, we've spoke about direct provision for day one we've met, and nothing has really, really changed. And um, with my experience of running local elections and what I take out of that and where I'm back at right now, being in direct provision and where I am at, it's a very, very difficult situation for me to realize that it is true. This is the situation that it, this is the system that it's been going on for 20 years now. And we're still living in it and the pain of living it through and through every day. It has never ceased, but it is actually growing. And for the people that you've actually known for this long while, you're not telling them of how, how easy or how better the system is the way it looks in the media or the way it's being discussed in public conversation but deep inside in a real situation it has becoming tougher than the way it was yesterday so I mean one of the (sighs) things that you have been um, very successful at in some ways as an advocate are things like um, your campaign for people to be able to cook for Mm -hmm. themselves Mm -hmm. in Mm centres And then there was also progress made on um, people being allowed work in the country. Mm-hmm. So the narrative, mm-hmm. as you descri- described it there, mm-hmm. is that things are getting better. Yeah, things are getting better on a, uh, on a paper. Things are getting better. Like a superficial like level. Like a superficial yeah. level. Things are getting better. There is a right to work. Uh, as you know, uh, of just recently, they've also announced the uh, access for children in third level education. And um, uh, uh, we have right to work. We have uh, the education that is just coming come up, and that started with other universities like three, four years ago. That they've taken number of uh, of refugees. Uh, people can actually speak uh, about direct provision, but not in a way that uh, it's more freely that people can speak about it there is so much the fear is still going on Mm. because what you have to understand is like I can come and speak about direct provision here and I'll still go back to where I live 
that's where the different life is. So like in a superficial world, yeah, it's 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 changing, it's more better. But uh, in a real world, uh, I've got mixed feelings about it. What are those feelings? The feelings is, I think it's just become, uh, it's just become like a product whereby you advertise it for people to see how good or how nice is that brand or how changing is that brand. But when in 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 in, in real life, it's still the same. Mm. It's the still it's still the same t- situation that it's been from the day one, from the way the situation started. There's been a change of people like being able like few centers we have. Now we have I can't even tell you the numbers of direct provision centers we have at the moment because direct provision centers are being opened almost every day because we are receiving a number. I am in a Baseskin reception center. So Baseskin reception center is the first place that if you want to know the numbers of people that are coming in this country that's when you can have the real numbers so i'm living in a center whereby every week we are having over 150 people at the center and if we are having 100 people at the center you want to tell me that now i'm living in baseskin for a year I'll, I'll be one year full i think in two weeks time when i was moved from watergate to baseskin so if these are the numbers of people that we're having in this country you just imagine how many people we are, we are having in this country at the moment because that center where you're at is kind of like the first yeah. uh res- or uh, quote unquote reception, yeah, reception center. center yeah and whereby now it's not like that first because people are being moved from Justice IPO when they've gone to seek the asylum, they're being uh, they're being received at the IPO where they do their first claim as arrival on the country. So from there, they're being sent to Monaghan. That's another where they they are recepting them. There is Bray, and uh, there is a place in uh, in Wicklow, and some they can actually go to Mosney. Mm. So I'm giving you the numbers that I can tell you that my eyes have witnessed. What are the rates of people leaving direct provision then? They, what are the rates of the people actually leaving direct provision if, the, if there's all these people coming in? Is there the same amount of people being released from direct provision or is it a case of that that is they're just building and building and building? I mean, it's for me, I'll tell you that like it's a case of building and building because I'm one of the longest people mm. living in direct provision and it's not only me, there are more people that are living there. Like I do, I don't just come out and say things that I don't even, I can be asked and not even back it up. Like I do my own research and mm-hmm. I do my own filing and I had to do a research where I'm living at the moment, just find out like how long have you been here? Mm. And there are people that are living there from one to four years in Baseskin Reception Center. And some of them I ask, why are you here? Some of them, they've got their papers, but they can't actually move because of the access to uh, community housing. It's very, very difficult. And not even only that community housing, but some are even there because their cases are still really processed and there's nothing that has been really done. And they're, okay, one thing that I've just learned of recently is even the rear is even failing to even not know that somebody went to IPO and they need to be processed or even to be moved. There have been a cases, like five cases that I've even recorded with the names of the people that they've been to IPO and do their first to uh, do their first um, uh, application for the asylum, and then even them they're wondering like why am I here, right? And they went What's back the six IPO months. What's the IPO? So it's the Office of uh, Refugee Application. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
So they've been there and then they're just like staying in Baseskin months and months and months and your card, your first card expires within six months. So when they're going to renew their card, they're being asked, where are you living? And I'm like, oh, I'm living in Baseskin. Are you sure you're living in Baseskin? So yeah, that's where I've been living. And then they've been come and told like, oh, we are sorry, I didn't record you that you're still existing. So like how many people mm-hmm. does right. even the system doesn't even know that they're still in the system? So this is this is how <laughs> this is how it's real. Yeah. yeah. This is how real. And what are your what are your because um, I know you were in the Dublin yeah. City Centre, right? Yeah. And then there was a really weird situation yes. um, down on the Keys where mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. accommodation was kind of closed up yeah. and then people living there such as yourself were moved mm-hmm. out to certainly uh, North County Dublin yeah. right yeah. Um, and what are what are the conditions in that centre in that accommodation like uh, the the way I was living no right now right now so this is where the reception that's this reception centre yeah so I only live in a hub like the hub has got three rooms like exactly where we are mm. right so these three rooms because I have two kids so yeah. me and my daughter we share one of the room and my son you know he's now a, a man almost a teenager so he's uh, spending his time in his own private room mm. and we use like a small space like this one just as like a living area whereby we have to put some of our belongings there mm. because we don't have like our belongings are all over with friends like you so mm. yeah when you um I mean, when you heard of, of what was happening um, with with Silva and Galway, she passed away last August, mm-hmm. um, and then the story uh, that emerged that um, the coroner had signed off on um, a funeral without informing her friends. Um, how did that make you feel? Like, what kind of emotions did that raise for you? I know it's a very difficult thing to talk about. And uh, <laughs> that's the emotions that I I do have. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah. I cried. Like, I really cried. I really cried, right? I have two kids and uh, my sister, and she has her own. Like, we're a family, I know. We can console one another. I've never talked about this thing because, like, I carry so much about direct provision that people don't actually know. I'm so sorry, Ellie. I know it's so difficult. I'm sorry. It's okay. I don't want you to talk about anything that is going to upset you, you know. I've ref- I, like I've been invited for to contribute to the interview about him, but I've refused. I, I've only done this because like you are my friend, and I knew like I won't be embarrassed even to do, because you know me better, and you know what type of a person I am, and uh, like for me, I don't want to go somewhere and to, people feel like I'm making out of this. But you know, like uh, it's very sad that even in death, direct provision describe describe him, you know. And uh, I don't know where he's at now. Like, uh, we are told that people who die, they're at peace. And I'm not sure if he's at peace. But uh, I can say, you know, like, I'm sorry, Sylvia. I'm one of the people that failed you. But, uh, you know, like, 
we couldn't control anything. You know, Ali, you haven't failed anyone ever. Yeah. And um, you were one of the strongest people that I know and one of the yeah. most determined people. And the only people failing, you and your family and Silva and their friends, is this state. And I don't know how many times that we can have these conversations. I don't know either. And uh, talk talk about the same thing and the same system of institutionalization and uh, inhumane treatment that is happening in this country right now. I don't know how many times we can have these conversations. I don't know how many times, you know, people like me who are so privileged can just shout into the void writing in newspapers and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And I don't know what to do anymore. I know. <laughs> and um, one of the reasons that we set up this podcast is to give this semblance of optimism or, or action. And what are we to do? Like, are we, you know, privileged white Irish? Do we stand outside these places? Uh, I mean, what do we do? I, I, I don't even... Like I don't even know like owner what to tell you because like if I can stand here and bring the circle of my Irish friend that I have many of the people like I know you've tried so hard and they've tried so hard and you were one of the people that you highlighted direct provision and this is where we are and the stories that we are hearing now it they are horrific they are horrific they are even hard to to understand just to sit down and figure out like why how is this situation happening and uh, i don't even know what to make of it like myself but uh, i mean the way i'm looking at everything it's the the continuation of this system is designed to make us tired to make us frustrated to break us but uh one thing i've learned in life is like tough time never lasts but tough people will last so we will last and what we can do is to show our strength and keep keep find the ways because i think direct provision need a radical overhaul and that's what it needs right now and it needs people to be angry to expose this i i can't mention the name of the direct provision manager who there was a time i had a huge fight with the direct provision manager and even where if they can listen my podcast they know i'm telling what went down on that conversation right and uh, they said to me oh ellie you don't even need to be like this it hurts to open a newspaper and read about, oh, direct provision this, direct provision that, direct provision this. And I said, where is your conscience placing you? Because me as Eric Siombe, right, I don't think I would even go and look for a job like this job, which is making this headline. So if you want to be somebody that you don't want to be named or you don't want to hear these stories, then make this system better, mm. right? Make this system better because that's the only thing that's going to define you. Because even I myself, one day, I'll stand up and mention your only name. And this has happened over and over and over in the very hardest institutions. People, they've come like, there was somebody who even made our pain easy. But you are not. You are, the, the, you are one of those people that are causing this pain, right? And he said to me, like, oh, Ellie, you have to be grateful. Because, like, here, a few days ago, we received people with, without anything, but only the bags of rags in there 
and a bottle of coke, a bottle of water that was given. So I'm like, so in your head, that's how you treat people like this. Because we have to be grateful. Because a few days ago, there were people that came off from Calais or or from Mediterranean Sea, from Greece, that came here with their plastic bags. Do you actually know how long these people left their lives, their comfortable lives, to actually get here to Ireland? It has taken them, some of them, even eight years in transit. So you are expecting them to come here and pull eight chunks of suitcases for you to say they should not be grateful because they are alive here. You know what? Mm. You're as evil as the devil itself because you don't describe yourself really well. And I tell you, God should forgive you because you are just committing one of the heinous crimes that God will judge you. Not the cost will judge you, but God will judge you. And stop doing that. And you know what he did? Because I was really upset and angry and I even regretted using those words to him. And the next morning he came and said, oh, you know what, Eddie, I'm sorry. I think yesterday we just exchanged words. But I just said to him, like, I've forgiven you even the f very first day I moved in this situation because of what I've gone through. But I think from now, you should start repenting the way you think over people. Mm -hmm. These are people, they're human beings, and that's what you should be thinking when you look at them. Don't even use the word grateful again because people had life and they didn't even make this choice. But it's the situation, the situation that people have is like, either I die or I live. They only have two decisions. And in that two decisions, the only thing they can do is to say, I'd rather die trying. And that's what people are doing. That's the only choice they have. Ali, I want to thank you so much for, for talking with us. I know it's been difficult and I hate asking you to relive trauma and to pour out your emotions because it is unfair. Mm -hmm. And what I guess as a leader and as a representative of yourself and of this injustice, your voice is always so powerful and I'm I am grateful for that. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm really sorry. But, uh, Please don't apologize. Yeah, yeah, thank you. To get some more context on this, um, I sat down with Maeve O'Rourke, who's one of the brightest legal minds in the country, in my opinion, and who's done a lot of work on this culture of institutionalisation that we have in Ireland, of which direct provision is a part of. And she kind of spoke about where direct provision sits in this legacy that has now become contemporary of institutionalising people throughout Irish history and present. So my name is Maeve O'Rourke and I am a lecturer in the Irish Centre for Human Rights in NUIG. You've done a tremendous amount of work in terms of um, work with uh, Magdalene Laundry survivors and our culture of institutionalisation in general and kind of banishing people and that kind of stuff. How do we view direct provision in context or is it a unique uh, type of system in Ireland? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Una. Like, I think it's so important to see direct provision as yet another form of the institutionalisation that is our Irish culture. So um, there are two academics, Ian O'Donnell and Ona Sullivan, who've written about the 20th century um, culture of confinement and they through you know statistical analysis show that more than one percent of our population was incarcerated in one way or another in 1951 which was I think they say the most in the world apart from the USSR 
Um, and we know like from all of the stories that are coming forward from the various investigations that we had a huge culture of outsourcing social welfare provision to private bodies, i.e. state or sorry, church organisations, whether, you know, run by nuns or priests or lay religious organisations um, and that that those organisations institutionalised people and so that we dealt with people who needed things from the state um, by institutionalising them and that is absolutely still the case I mean I actually wrote my PhD a few years ago on mistreatment of older people and the institutionalisation of older people is a huge issue in Ireland we only have fair deal to allow you to be in a nursing home and it's practically impossible to get sufficient home care we over-institutionalise people with intellectual disabilities. Um, but direct provision is absolutely part of that culture. Uh, it's not normal to do so. There was a case a few years back in Northern Ireland where um, uh, the extradition was sought of a family who um, had gone from Ireland to Northern Ireland, but they had been living in direct provision and the judge in the High Court in Northern Ireland refused to send the family back um, and he went into great detail about the welfare of the children and how direct provision would absolutely not be in their best interests and he compared it with the situation in Northern Ireland where people who are seeking asylum um, live in the community and he said you know they may not be labelled direct provision may not be labelled as detention but people cannot go anywhere else so it effectively is um, so we have a long history of it that's what I would say. One of the frustrating things I think that a lot of people feel who are engaged with this issue, um, who are, you know, people living in Ireland, not in institutions or not outside of direct provision, let's say, is how do we stop this? Like the campaigns, you know, NDP or that it needs a radical overhaul or, you know, the repetitive discourse from some quarters including myself that this needs to stop and we need to end it yet that bridge between saying that and doing it seems kind of insurmountable like I don't know how to how we do that I mean we didn't do it at the time in terms of the institutions that you kind of specialize in a lot yeah yeah I mean it's 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 a really big and it's a really important question and it is something I think about a lot because, of course, like how on earth did the Magdalene laundries operate for so long? Did mother and baby homes operate for so long when it was so clear that they were violating people's basic constitutional rights? They were arbitrary detention and for separation for no reason um, other than you were an unmarried family. So, like, how did we let that happen and how are we letting the same things or similar things happen today? I would say yes. And what is it that we can do now? I think we have um, far more information these days because the institutions of the past, in terms of, I suppose, access to the people who are experiencing the violations. So the institutions of the past, like absolutely kind of cut people off from um, society. And we don't have that excuse in terms of, you know, not knowing what exactly is happening there in people's own words. Like people who are in direct provision are telling us. I sat and watched hours of testimony a few weeks ago by um, uh, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland people who are all in direct provision telling the Oireachtas Justice Committee like in minute detail what it is like to live in a place day by day where you actually have to beg for toilet paper 
or where there's constant surveillance or people can come into your room at any time you're not given a choice of what to eat in fact you know if you need to go out of the center for something uh, well if you've missed dinner time you've missed dinner time someone who there was a woman who spends um 40 euro a week of her 38 euro allowance and some of her children's just to get a local to bring her child from the door of the direct vision center 15 minutes to the bus stop so that she can get to school because the center won't let the bus go 15 minutes earlier another man told the justice committee that he had had to beg beg his center manager to be able to get to a hospital because the bus of course only runs certain times of day you know and if you're out in the town till after 4 p.m well you have to just walk you know, miles and miles home because you don't even have a bus pass. So we know and we have no excuse. And maybe um, I think maybe there's a bit of just laziness. I think we maybe are good at talking about it online, but it's a matter of getting actually active. So um, I think the big issue is housing. And I was actually kind of shocked to see what I thought was so few people at the last housing protest I think it should have been far bigger yeah I had that impression as well like it was everybody was really like lively and engaged but I was kind of looking at it going there should be 100,000 people here 100,000 people is what it took with the water charges protests for the government to actually sit up and listen and change their policy I thought it would be 100,000 as well so how you change direct provision all of the organisations that work on it say like you can't institutionalise people anymore you have to let them live in the community not separated away from everybody with their own front door living as families living as normal adults and children do and you know engaging and being able to engage with everybody around them so like that obviously requires housing um it also requires a complete change of mindset which is related to our housing crisis crisis on the government's part which is like the state needs to start actually providing services and stop outsourcing and start stop giving taxpayers money to private for-profit providers like the people who run track provision make an absolute fortune running it and that is not right it's like the private prisons you know you can't you shouldn't be I suppose it's a matter of policy and a matter of rights making a profit from somebody else's misery in this case Um, but you know it's just the wrong incentive the absolute priority and the absolute core of providing you know housing and services to people seeking asylum as is their right under international law and our law in Ireland and European law like the absolute core has to be to respect their rights to vindicate their rights it can't be profit it makes no sense so that we need a huge change in the ideology but again that requires people to actually get out exercise their voice get out on the streets vote protest it's all connected you were saying that you were at um, watching the Justice Committee um, testimonies uh, recently and uh, or the Rocks Committee testimony um, on direct provision. Where is direct provision at in a legal sense or in a political sense right now? Yeah, it's a really good question. So one interesting thing um, is that the Irish Supreme Court found that there is a right to work based on dignity under our constitution for people who are in direct provision but that in my view has not been given proper effect to when you listen to everybody giving their testimony to the justice committee it's clear that actually the right to work still doesn't mean anything for a lot of people and things like you know the reasons include the fact that they're 
work permit only lasts for six months, meaning, you know, it's different to everybody else's work permit who's not Irish and employers just don't really understand or believe you that you actually do have the right to work. Not having transport, not being able to get a bank account, not being able to get a driving license. Um, and then, of course, it's limited in terms of who it, who the right under our um, rules here in Ireland even applies to. Um, so, like, legally speaking, I suppose that's one major area of kind of rights violations that the Supreme Court actually found there was a right to work based on human dignity. And we're still not affording that to people. Um, I wrote a submission along with the Irish Council for Civil Liberties to the Justice Committee raising, you know, a whole range of other human rights violations that quite clearly are happening. I would say that direct provision on a daily basis is violating the right to freedom from torture and cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment. So there are levels of the type of treatment that reaches those thresholds. um, But there's absolute evidence of you know, systematic degrading treatment, which the Irish state and our constitution and European law and international law is absolutely bound to prevent. And that that degradation, the sense of absolute humiliation, of worthlessness, of being separated from the rest of society solely due to a characteristic of yours, which is that you are not Irish. Like that is what degrading treatment is all about in, you know, case law Um and I really feel that that is happening. Um, I think that there are massive violations of the right to respect for private and family life, just general overcrowding, um, people not having their own space, constant surveillance, being asked for ID if you need to use. And um, one of the Massey representatives to the Justice Committee talked about needing to use an ironing board and having to produce ID every time. Just these kind of indignities constant indignities that infringe on your um sense of personal identity and also just your right to lead a private life but there are loads of others i mean i think that direct provision centers can be dangerous places for children for women um in particular um and i do think that we have to question whether they are in fact in effect places of detention thanks for your time Maeve. You're so welcome. Thanks, Una. It's very difficult to now try and go back into real life, into normal life and talk about things that like our fave bits when we've just listened to somebody who is struggling to have any semblance of normal life every day. And then we are in this situation where we can then jump into talking about what our favourite bits of the week are and what seems frivolous, but is still part of life. And I suppose it's that disconnect and you just want to be able to try and help and fix these situations um, but then you also have to keep trucking on I suppose and everyone has to keep trucking on to get true one of the cruel things I suppose and the smart things uh, that direct provisions does as a system it, it kind of denies access not just to people in it to the outside world but also people in the outside world to it so like how do you connect with people who are living in direct provision how can you be an ally how can you be an advocate for them there are some ways to do that um massey m-a-s-i is um 
uh, uh, an independent kind of platform for asylum seekers to to join together and, and, and kind of get some solidarity. If you go to masi.ie, there's information there about how to be an effective ally and how to help. Um, the Irish Refugee Council, you can look up um, their website as well with regards to um, kind of actions and stuff like that that they have. You know, the two people who are presiding over this right now uh, um, are the Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, and the Minister for State and Equality, Immigration, Integration, David Stanton. Um, Email them. uh, Tell them that you want direct provision to end. Tell them that you want more transparency. Ask them why the Department of Justice has stopped releasing um, the number of deaths in direct provision as they have since 2017. You know, we need to kind of put pressure on our politicians because the fact is, if you're looking at it and, you know, electoral politics, um, this is not a vote getter for politicians. But we know as a society that we can get stuff that seems to be relatively detached from most people's lives onto the political agenda and make make them election issues. There will be a general election coming up here. And I think it would be amazing if we could all make so much noise as possible to make um, dismantling direct provision and having some kind of more humane and empathic system in its place, an election issue. Right. Um, let's let's uh, move on with the podcast. My fave bits this week. OK, so I went to see Late Night at the weekend. This is the um, Mindy Kaling uh, written and starring film also with Emma Thompson. And it's amazing. And Emma Thompson forever. And I love her so much. I love this film. It is about a late night talk show host who's a woman who is like being replaced potentially. Um, And it's kind of all about like sexism in television and all that kind of stuff. What's kind of mad about it is that there isn't really a prominent late night uh, female American chat show presenter. So it's kind of even further from uh, reality. Yeah, they had to like invent different ways of uh, sexism. Um, by holding up somebody who doesn't actually exist in the media landscape. Anyway, it is really, really good. Emma Thompson is fantastic. And special shout out to Mitchell Travers, who's a costume designer, who just does the most incredible job with Emma Thompson. Oh my God, like unreal. I'll, I'll this stop is another, This is another visual thing. I'm sweating to look now. <laughs> <laughs> he also did uh, the costume on Ocean's 8, the one with all the women. Like shit film, but go clothes. And he did Eighth Grade as well, which I haven't seen. I missed it in the cinema. Anything with eight in it. Yes, correct. Um, my other fave bit was Kat Moran's piece on Glastonbury, where she hung out with Emily Evis for months and months and months and wrote this really great piece. Obviously, Catelyn is an amazing writer. Hopefully, she'll be on the podcast soon. And um, it just made me really excited because I'm going to Glastonbury next week and I am living for it. Five nights in a field. Oh, God, I'd be terrified. And I love a festival more than anything. I just couldn't cope. You absolutely could cope. No, I Everybody says they can't cope, but it's you just have to picture it. It's not like one big mass of, you know, festival city. It's like 10 different festivals, 20 different festivals. I know, but this is the reason I hate London. And I prefer Dublin and New York. Oh, I like a right. little intimate vibe. I hate having to like trek anywhere. I'm, and There's I, a lot of trekking. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Those are my fave bits. Read that Catlin Moran Glastonbury piece. It is brill. And it'll make you want to go if you've never been. And if you are going, it'll make you turbo excited. Yay, trekking. <laughs> <laughs> my fave bits are uh, Dublin Old School is now on uh, Netflix, which I am very excited about. I think we have this 
thing in Ireland where partying lays under the seed of darkness and we don't talk about it happening and we don't acknowledge it and that's why we have so many issues with our nighttime economy so to see it um, in a film like this on, on Netflix I think is a really good thing for our country and for our parties but also it's done in such an honest way because like obviously there isn't just all good sides to partying and all that jazz so I think it's a really good film for everyone to watch uh, another thing that is floating my boat this week is women for election are looking to get more women elected and as we have seen from recent times, the more women that are involved in politics, the more women's issues become red line issues and that we can get things moving, I suppose. And you sound really enthusiastic about <laughs> <laughs> Do I not? I actually really am. Like, it actually is something that I think the more women that we have talking about our own shit, like, for example, period poverty. Yeah. Like, you, for so long, it was periods had never even been on the dull record until recently. So, or it had only been on, I can't remember the figures, I've no memory, but partying. Uh, <laughs> but the whole point is that the more women that are involved, the more our women-only uh, issues come up. And women have 24% of council seats and 22% of doll seats. And uh, women for election are aiming to get that to 50%, but they need some cash support to do that. And anyone who is ever saying, we need more women in representation, this is your chance to try and make it happen. They're looking to get 35,000 to help train 300 women with an eye to the next general election, wherever that may be. So the more women who run for election, the more women women who will be elected. It's like a, a, no a numerical fact. fact. QED. There I did honours maths. And the last Did thing, you actually do honours yeah, maths? I did, no yeah. way, I did Yeah, pass. I loved maths. I don't anymore. Session <laughs> maths. <laughs> the last thing I'm excited about is uh, Atelier Macer are presenting Stephen Burke, who's an Irish artist who's gone abroad and has studied fine art. But his exhibition is about the removal of graffiti, aka buffing. And like that sounds a bit weird but when you get into the psychology of what, the way he's uh, approached it he looks at the different types of buffing that are done so there's different names like conservative buffing ghosting buffing and radical buffing and you can see the conservative buffing is like a square and that is done in mainly um, middle class areas and if you go into more working class areas it's more creative you'll have cloud shapes flower shapes people who are just frustrated because you don't have um, as much uh, investment in uh, removing or Art, um, but the removal of the art becomes art in itself, and it's it's apt. He has a book out as well about all this. But the exhibition kicks off on the twenty seventh of June and is definitely worth having a go. And that's in Atelier Macer on Charlemagne Street. Woohoo! Go fave bits. Another fave bit is you people who have given us your amazing cash on our Patreon patreon.com forward slash United Ireland we hit over 100 patrons uh, this week so Yay. we are delighted please keep it coming and help us make good stuff just 3 euro or dollars a month thank you this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media and helped along by Susie Bennett thanks to Crystal Clear for our music Sarah Fox for design and you for listening you can find links to all our socials on our website unitedirelandpodcast.com and if you've enjoyed listening let us know tweet us do an insta story or better than that give us some cash on our patreon account to end this week we need something to give us a bit of a boost and the song is high energy by evelyn thomas and it is the ultimate tuna chicken roll we've been una malali 
And Andrea Horan. This has been United, United Ireland. Ireland. And that was Galway. Hi.